Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. And today we're going to talk about something that is at least new to the um, Midwest market, particularly the Cincinnati market. And as it relates to medicine, I would say it's relatively new too, even though it's been going on for a couple decades. So my question to you is, have you ever looked down there? It's a private question and you may have asked yourself in the past, can you improve the look down there? And what I mean by down there, a lot of people will say, well, my vagina, but the vagina is actually uh, the part that's inside where a penis would go or maybe a sexual toy would go. But all of that down there is really called the vulva. And today we're gonna talk about one particular part of the vulva called the labia minora or the smaller lips. And I have a fellow cosmetic gynecologist. He's actually a board certified gynecologist. His name is Dr. David Gosland. And he's become a friend and colleague. And we have very similar practices. And he's been doing cosmetic surgery and labiaplasty surgery for a really long time. And so today we're gonna talk about everything there is to know about labiaplasty, or specifically labiaplasty minora. So welcome, Dr. Gosland. Thank you very much, Dr. Brenner. And just by you saying I've been doing it for so long, you just dated me, I feel so old. <laughs> well, you were probably one of the first people, I, I would imagine, maybe not the first, but you were pretty, pretty, first to the game to start doing cosmetic gynecology surgeries. Am I right? I'll, I'll tell you how it started. It was actually a, a funny story because you'll know these people. So I finished my residency in 2005 and um, I had just started my private practice. I was at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. And um, one of my, my medical student colleagues who was doing a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology as an infertility specialist at UCLA called me because we were very, um, we were good friends and called me and said, look, there's this new thing called vaginal rejuvenation. There's this guy, his name's Dr. Madlock. And there's a lot of controversy over it. And the chairman of the OBGYN department at UCLA wants me to do a committee opinion for our American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology Compendium, which is like sort of our Bible. Mm -hmm. And I have zero interest and I have no time. And I don't know, you seem like you're not that busy. Would you be interested in taking a look at this? And I said, yeah, sure. I really didn't know anything about it. And I started doing my research and I knew on the spot that this was going to be something big. Um, so that's how I sort of put my first feet in the water when it comes to cosmetic gynecology. And the compendium, when it first came out, wasn't really pro-vaginal rejuvenation because in the very beginning when all this started, and I'm sure you remember, Amy, everybody, all our colleagues, were looking down on all these procedures. 
Yes. And, and and some still even do, which I think like you need to get with the times, but some still think it's uh taboo and we shouldn't be messing down there. Absolutely. And and but things are definitely changing. So I do that compendium. I learned so about it. You wrote the committee opinion opinion in the 2000 I, I was one of the writers on it. Okay. Um and then and then shortly thereafter I decided and what was the gist of the ACOG committee opinion? What was the gist of the article that that doctors shouldn't be doing this or? That ACOG didn't support uh, this type of procedure because the evidence wasn't behind it yet. And that they they were, you know, it was a very sensitive matter because they didn't, they, it was a fine line between is this considered mutilation or are we taking away something that nature produced and are we making patients feel dissatisfied or are we encouraging dissatisfaction of your own body image mm -hmm. um and that was that your opinion in 2005 of what no you, you know so i handed my research to to ucla and 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 these fellows and they kind of took it and then unfortunately they rewrote it a little bit to to meet what their chairman's point of view needed to be and then and then there was no internet really there was much, there wasn't any really pr and i was just starting so it was a very slow progression because I, I really wanted to build my practice and, and I really felt like I needed the bread and butter of, of straight hysterectomies and myomectomies and surgery. So it wasn't until probably 2013 that, that my practice really started to take a shift. But around that time, solo practices in Los Angeles were kind of fading out. And um, I was approached by a larger group at, in Santa Monica where I practiced. And the head of the group said to me, look, we really like you. The nurses speak really well of you and, and you have a great personality. We'd love to have you on board, but we checked out your website and, and you do the, these labiaplasties and, and we really feel that it is going to ruin your reputation in this community. So we would love to hire you, but with the understanding that you'll never be able to perform any of these procedures. And what year was this? 2013. Oh, and I okay. thought about it for for literally an hour because I called my wife and I said, I don't know, this would, could be a really good opportunity. I would have coverage and, and I would have a guaranteed salary and, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong. And then I quickly changed my mind. I said, thank you. I'm not interested. And in 2017, that same head of the group called me and said, David, do you mind teaching me? those procedures. <laughs> and I just laughed and I said, no, I'm really sorry. I can't. Yeah. Um, but anyways, just to tell you, cosmetic gynecology has taken a life of its own since then. We've done so many more procedures and we do really cool things. So I thought I'd give you a little history into my background. Kudos to you for uh, having that much confidence of when you were first starting out of training with Dr. Allen. So it took me, I think I debated about doing it for three years before I actually did it because I mean he's a world-renowned surgeon and but you know getting started in cosmetic surgery is you know it's a it's an investment to train with him it costs as much as some college tuitions um and uh the equipment and I kind of thought like you live in LA but I thought well I do women in Cincinnati Ohio really care about this and is it going to be worth my, you know, time and effort and learning curve? And it took me a while before I decided to do it. But uh, obviously, I've learned that, you know, women are the same everywhere. And uh, people people do care about it. Um, 
obviously across the world. It's not just a California thing. But it took me a long time because it's expensive to learn this. And also an investment is, and there's a learning curve for yeah, sure. And look, I think anything that's different than what you're accustomed to is always a little scary. Um, and I think, I mean, I was nervous too. And that's why I, even though I took the course, I went back and, and continued general gynecology and general surgery for many, many years, just because of the fear of losing our bread and butter and what we were truly at the core trained to do. But I think as gynecologists, once you take these courses and you learn the finesse of plastic surgery and you combine it with your gynecology training, that's what makes us as cosmetic gynecology so fitted as opposed to purely plastic surgeons or purely just gynecologists. Um, so I think it's really a nice niche to be in. Yeah, so you bring up a good point of something I wanted to talk to you about is, and, and we'll get into the specifics of labiaplasty minora, but, you know, you mentioned a lot of, there's a lot of different specialties that may do labiaplasties. And um, I actually just, uh, I reread your book. Um, I'll just go ahead and talk about your book is you wrote a book, Everything You Need to Know About Cosmetic Gynecology. Um, and so I, I read it a couple months ago when you told me about it, and then I just reread it today in uh, uh, preparation for our talk. It's really well done and really um, comprehensive. So, you know, the, the thank you very much. And, and I have to thank the pandemic for producing this book because you and I and many people who are just so used to just working so hard and so many hours. It was a, in Los Angeles when we had a full lockdown, we closed our office for two months. Yeah. And I mean, I was beside myself. I was at, I had I had already cleaned the basement. I had cleaned the garage. I had redone the house. I, I didn't know what to do. And then finally, one day I was sitting there going, man, I miss operating and doing everything I love to do. And just I was Googling books on cosmetic gynecology. And aside from a very few medical books that are really meant for a surgeon, there was really not much out there for patients. And, and, and I knew that there's, it's such a new field and terminology can be so loosely used in our field and people call the same thing by so many different names that I wanted to put together a book that just went ahead and focused on what I do and, and for patients, this, I wanted to write it for a, a patient's point of view and make sure they understood these procedures and they understood the realities of these procedures and the expectations and how to prepare for them and what to look for in a good surgeon versus maybe someone that's not so recommended um, and to be really careful and do their research. Yeah, you do a really good job. It's an easy read. I think it's um, it really explains it all of what to expect for the consultation, what to expect for surgery, what to expect for the post-op period. It really does a nice job of going over the anatomy. Um, my experience has been is most women don't understand the anatomy is so many times my medical assistant or nurse will room a patient says she's here for a labia uh, majoroplasty. And then when I give the patient the mirror and go over the anatomy, She's not here for a majoroplasty, which are the the bigger lips are on the outside. She she's calling them the bigger lips because it's her labia minoroplasty that are bigger than her 
labia majora. And so in your book, it does a really good job of something, what you and I think is simple, but explaining the anatomy. Because I even had a patient that was a labor and delivery nurse, and she didn't understand the anatomy. Well, that's a little scary, but (laughs) yes, totally. (laughs) I, I see that in my practice every day also. So it's so funny you should bring that up. Yeah. So what the patient says they're there for or what is on the schedule and what they're really talking about are just night, night and day. So so if nothing else to um, in, inform people about the anatomy and I got this book on Amazon. Um, so it's easy to find. And it's, again, everything you need to know about cosmetic gynecology written by David Goslin, MD. And it's easily accessible on well, thank Amazon. Thank you for pointing that out, Amy. I appreciate it. But one of the things you talk about is, you know, there's a lot of, and you talk about it in your book, of there's a lot of different people doing these these cosmetic gynecology surgeries. Plastic surgeons are doing it. Regular gynecologists are doing it. Urogynecologists are doing it. And then there's people like yourself that are traditional, you and I, have, we're traditionally OBGYNs, but we've had extensive um you know, postgraduate training specifically in cosmetic gynecology. So if you could just kind of give us the highlights of what you go over, because I agree with you completely of how do you find a doctor? Um, and then we can talk about like, what what are you seeing when you're kind of touching up somebody else's work or revising somebody else's yeah, work? Great question. And I agree with you. I think, unfortunately, um, there's, there's a lot of people who want to get into this field who maybe don't take the time to really train themselves properly and go out there and advertise that they perform these procedures. And because their MDs, patients trust them, they have a procedure and then it completely devastates their life because they end up with a quote unquote botched procedure. Um, and I talk about this often, even sometimes on my Instagram account, which is, who should be doing these? And look, plastic surgeons, I always say, they have amazing technique. I mean, this is what they're all about, making everything look amazing, finesse, the suturing is impeccable, minimizing scars, making everything very symmetrical. And so that's a big plus. And I think they, for, for many of them, they do do a, a really good job with labioplasties. Um, I do talk about labioplasties are one area that plastic surgeons, I think, can do well in. Vaginal tightening surgeries, I think, is an area they feel very uncomfortable with because they haven't had that training to work inside the vagina. Gynecologists have that training to work inside the vagina, but truly as a gynecology resident, you do very, very little surgery on the labia minora. Um, and, And oftentimes, at least what I see in my practice when people come in for revision type surgeries is asymmetry, um, suturing the sutures they utilize are just too large and so they really leave um, this sort of bumpy appearance to the labia or they take too much off and amputate because they don't realize the amount of retraction that happens in the recovery period and so hence we're born as this perfect mesh that that feels very comfortable with the female anatomy and i want to say that because The problem with plastic surgeons doing this type of surgery, just like if I was doing breast augmentation, there's no reason why I can't do a breast augmentation just as well as a plastic surgeon can if I take courses and I practice. But the reality is you want somebody who can handle the complications 
and 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 the difficult outcomes or procedures and not get uh, scared about the anatomy or feel very comfortable with the anatomy and that's that's where I, why I do think having a gynecology background in cosmetic gynecology is crucial because this is this is our bread and butter we've been trained in this and, and we know what to do if 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 there's a complication or if there's a post-operative complication and that's very important and it's something I always talk about it's not just about the surgery it's about the safety around the surgery um, so I do think Gynecologists, even though they're trained in the female anatomy, they may not have the skills for that finesse that's needed in these cosmetic surgeries. Because at the end of the day, when we perform labiaplasties, we want it to be a surgery that the patient knows we did. I know I did, but nobody else knows the surgery right. happened. And when they ask me, right. oh, should I tell my gynecologist? And I say, look, the reality is I bet you anything your gynecologist won't even ask you about it because they won't even pick it up. Um, and, and, and to say that, that's a pretty big deal And somebody who's looking at vaginas every day. But the reality is if you're doing a really good labioplasty, very few, few people can actually tell it ever happened exactly. unless you know what to look exactly. for. So I think finding the right surgeon is really key. And second, I think really finding a comfort level with your surgeon because you want to really feel like their office is taking really good care of you and that surgeon is attentive to your needs and responds and you feel comfortable because it's a very sensitive matter. It's something that's extremely private and, 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 and you want to feel comfortable in discussing any issues with that person. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. From my standpoint, when I see people that have had a labiaplasty done by somebody else is I find that they're not addressing the clitoral hood. And what I found is 90 plus percent of the time is I'm also doing a clitoral hood reduction on a labiaplasty minora and regular gynecologists or most plastic surgeons don't want to go anywhere close to the clitoris. And then the other thing is, is I see gynecologists using a knife to do this procedure, which is not as, uh, you know, fine or can't really finesse it and get down to really just precise detail with the instruments that you and I both use. And and they leave the appearance of the labia minora kind of chopped off instead of tapering to where the frenulum is, is that area of the labia minora where it connects to the, the clitoris. So they kind of have dog ears. Um, those are the two main things that I see when people have had it done elsewhere is they didn't address those issues and then it just it looks weird yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right i think that speaks to experience um i think addressing the clitoral hood is crucial because what i tell patients is this everything is symmetrical in your body so if you have enlarged labias and and they're protruding beyond your your vulva and they're bulky or thick chances are the same thing is happening with your clitoral hood and and I and I, I show them I, I show them if I re, if I thin out your your labias and this is what it would look like, and then I, I cover it and I just say look at how thick your clitoral hood is. It's going your your point of focus then is going to is going to leave your labioplasty minora because that's fixed, but you're going to be obsessed and disappointed with the fact that all of a sudden you've got these. I call them bird beak appearance because it's just this top heavy appearance of the clitoral hood that's going to really bother you and you're going to come back in and want to do a clitoral hood. And I think most plastic surgeons and general gynecologists don't address it because 
they're so nervous about changing the sensation for patients or causing issues down the road or getting sued that they would rather leave it and not address it. Uh, but the reality is they're not really doing a complete surgery because the whole point is to empower women to feel confident about how they look. And, and, and I always tell them, if you only address the labia minora and you don't address something needed like the clitoral hood, you're not really you're not really completing the procedure in order to really get that look you desire. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. And I think it takes people that have just like again that extensive education and I feel like it was extensive um to really feel comfortable operating operating right around the the clinic. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think there is a learning curve. You know, you can take these courses but if you don't put in the hours of doing the cases and really learning and, and analyzing your work and even, listen, I think we're all good at what we do because we're, we're critical of our work. For me, you know, we become obsessive compulsive and I, I, I actually joke, it's, as my experience grows, it actually takes me now longer to do a labioplasty than it did when I first started. Yeah, same. And it's so annoying yeah. because you think it would, I know exactly, I mean, I can do it with my eyes closed at this point, but the reality is I see things, you're constantly learning. And so I'm seeing things that maybe I wasn't seeing five years ago um, because I know what the final product is going to look like if I move my little fine tip um, Elman Surgitron needle just a little to the right or bend it just a little to a 30 degree angle, what a difference that's going to make. Um, and so I think that comes with lots of experience, and that's why finding people like yourself, Dr. Brenner, and myself, and other cosmetic gynecologists is really important because you get one shot at this. Yeah, I like how you said that in your book. Is Your exact quote is your, I wrote it down, your first surgery is always the of best Of course, surgery. it's native tissue. Um, so, yeah. So let's back up and go to the very beginning is, what are what are women saying to you when they come in or why would somebody even consider a labiaplasty? Sometimes when I talk to my friends, my friends, obviously, they know that I do this and they'll be like, I've never even looked down there. Um, but and, and some women, you know, you know, they don't care. They haven't looked down there, but it is becoming a more and more popular procedure. Um, and, and I think um kind of the age range, at least for my practice, is younger girls and then probably mid-40s. Um, also, it seems like I have a high proportion of people that are getting divorced also kind of wanting to kind of change appearances. Um, but what, what are you hearing of why women and what age that they're wanting to have a labiaplasty? Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think that, first of all, it's becoming more common and, 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 and I think because of the internet and social media, you're, the people are, are seeing images of before and after much more often than they used to. So it's, it's becoming more, they're becoming more aware. Um, I, I would say that the majority of patients are, who are seeking a labioplasty are usually in their 20s to early 30s. Um, however, I got to say that maybe in the last couple of years, I'm starting to see a big change and I'm having more women coming in after childbirth and saying, look, I want to get my vagina tightened because of laxity, because of, of torn muscles or, or separation of your pelvic floor muscles, and I don't feel the same friction. But while you're down there, 
can you just touch up because I never felt comfortable with it. It's always bothered me in clothes or when I exercise. And so I'd still say the majority for labioplasty menorahs tend to be younger, but I, I feel like the paradigm is, is changing a little bit and it's being accepted now as a really satisfying and gratifying procedure throughout the ages. And I, I've had patients, actually I had one patient who was 80 years old mm. who came in for a labioplasty, um, which is a different, by the way, it, it, and it's something we can talk about too, handling somebody who's in menopause sometimes. Um, you have to do, I, at least for me, I, I sometimes will put them a little bit on estrogen prior to me doing the surgery just to optimize that tissue quality. Yeah, I agree. I do that actually on everybody over 40 if they're not taking any hormones is some pre-op kind of topical estrogen and to just make the tissue a little bit healthier. But it it is interesting. Like I'm I'm a, a little bit older than you, but uh you know, and I don't know where the shift came, but um like I don't think I started shaving down there until I was in residency. So like mid twenties, it just, it just wasn't a thing versus now like shaving, waxing, laser hair removal, like being aware of that area of our body. Like growing up, I wasn't aware. Um, and I'm 52 now versus most people are, are very aware of, you know, hair what it looks like the color and i don't know when that went like when did it all shift well, i mean um, I, I think look I, this is just my personal thought i think social media has been a huge huge game changer for these types of procedures because it's everywhere and and and, and teenagers are on TikTok and, and instagram and before you know i think when we first started our social media, we were told, oh, stay off TikTok because the demographic is so young and you're not going to really hit your target audience. But the reality, that's changed already. Your TikTokers now are older um, and they they are pursuing these procedures. And so you're, 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 that, that overload of information is on every media platform and everybody is on their phones now nonstop, countless hours a day. So it's no surprise that they're coming across. And actually, I've, I've had discussions about this. I think in, in one sense, it, it's causing a little bit of body dysmorphism. Yeah. Um, and and, and yeah. I think it's going to have to be addressed at some point because if, if, I mean, the amount of plastic surgery being performed, and I'm not just talking about cosmetic gynecology. I'm talking about what is considered normal and sexy now. You know, the, the really tiny waistlines with, with the really accentuated um, buttocks area and the big lips and the overwhelmingly large breasts we're back to and these 360 lipos everybody's doing. It's, it's, it's crazy the amount of plastic surgery when patients come in for consultations. Usually, I'm not their first go-to. Usually, they've, they've had a tummy tuck or they've had a BBL or a breast dog. And then they and then they they come in because they're interested in the labioplasty, and I'm always astounded at how young these patients are that are undergoing all these dramatic, physically changing appearances um, because they want to be part of that norm that they yeah. identify on social yeah. media. Because these people are rolling up in Bentleys and playing rap music, and they're super cool. But 
listen, it's the change of the time. So I think if, if, if that's the case, if we can give them surgeries that are done well and safely and in the right hands, then it's the best we can do at, at this point. Yeah. So what do you do when somebody comes in for your consult process? Like what, what do you typically do when somebody comes in and says, I want a labiaplasty? And then they actually are, a, you know, that is what we're talking about is the labiaplasty minority. Yeah, look, I think with any good consultation, um, I want to get to know the patient. Um, first of all, it's very important as physicians to know who we're dealing with. What kind of medical issues do they have? Do they have any contraindications to this type of surgery? What medications are they on? For example, if somebody has herpes, um, I like to put them on prophylactic antiviral medication for them, the surgery and for the next few days. Um, so it's important to really understand their medical background, what medications they're on, and their motivation for the surgery. Because, look, a lot of times I'll have somebody come in, and I, and I had this actually a few months ago. She came in and she was engaged to somebody, but he's, he's been cheating on her. And this really affected her confidence. And when she approached him with that, what did he say? He turned around and said, well, it's your fault because I don't feel you down there. And so she ran my into my practice. My heart sinks when I hear my that. Heart sinks yeah, when I hear something, that you know, so we have to be very careful because part of it is being a therapist. And look, I'm not here to do surgery on everybody who walks in the door. I want to make sure that you're having something done that you really need. And that's really important. And I think that goes hand in hand with good qualified physicians that are not going to sell you something because they're trying to make a quick buck. Um, so I really try to understand why they're having it. And if it's, if it's, if it's an issue similar to that, I'm not a therapist, but a lot of times before I even do surgery, I recommend they seek therapy and understand their relationship before. Because I tell them, having a surgery is not going to fix your relationship, period. It's not going to make you closer to your partner. It's not going to do anything but get, empower you if that's what you need. But it's, it's definitely not going to fix any relationship. Um, but once we get past that, I give them a mirror so that we can look together during the consultation and we talk out loud. I'll, I'll, I'll talk away, then they know to feel free to interrupt me at any point. Then after the consultation, we talk about realistic expectations because I think the worst thing you can do is not set somebody's expectations. And in their mind, and, and how, and this happens to you, and it happens to me all the time, it happened to me yesterday. Where somebody throws, says, "Oh, Doctor Gosling, you know what? I'm really embarrassed, but I happen to be looking for before and after pictures, or I saw this porn star on TV. Can you make me like that?" <laughs> and you're like, "Well, look, I would love to say yes, but the reality is, you're not built like that, and there is no way I can make you look like that." And 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 we talk about that, and we talk about, "Look, this is what you, I can. I this is what the surgery is going to do for you. Are you okay with that?" Because what you're showing me is a whole different person with whole different anatomy, and it's not reflective of what's going to happen to you. And so I think making sure people really understand what the end product is going to look like is really important. Agree. I, I use that term, too. I actually call it if your goal is porn star perfect, like, first of all, that doesn't exist because I guarantee you, like, everybody in magazines, like, They've been airbrushed, and I usually even show some of them my marketing material. I'm like, look, this is me. Like, that's not what I look like every day. Like, this is with professional hair, makeup, airbrushed, like, 
um, that's what happens when you're in a magazine is all of those minor imperfections are kind of however they do it with photography are edged out. And so that's not really a thing. Um, we can make it as sym symmetrical as possible and much more symmetric than, you know, you might currently be. But, you know, sometimes there's a millimeter off because of the healing process. Um, or, you know, not everybody heals super smoothly. Sometimes it does go back to that crinkled edges of the labia. Yeah, totally. And I think you're right. It's just making sure your counseling is really crystal clear for them. And then, and then I have them write down on my consent form exactly the look they're trying to achieve so that they, they are expressing it and writing it. And that gives me another layer to discuss it with them because I can be like, oh, well, hold on a second, because here you wrote that you want to have a Barbie look. And, and that's something you and I can talk about either today or some other time. You know, our, our mentor, Dr. Red Allenside, is known for creating that Barbie look. And um, at least in my practice, to be honest, it's not something that I traditionally push on patients because I've, I have very mixed feelings about the Barbie look. Yeah, same. It's not super popular for me. So to back up a little bit, um, we both learned that, you know, there's kind of three levels to a labiaplasty, a rim, just taking the outer dark edges off. I hardly ever do that. The Barbie is where you remove all the labia. I hardly ever do that. And so my most common one is is a hybrid where I remove most of it, but there's still, you could see that there's still labia minora. So that's my most popular. And, and look. I agree. That's my most popular look. But just to give the audience just so the reason why Amy and I are and I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure Amy, you feel the same way. This is what I tell patients about the Barbie look. Um, when your labias are really long, or at least you feel that they're really long, they want a drastic change. They want to come in and they tell me, I want nothing. Take as much off as you can, Dr. Goslin. And my and I come back and I say, look, same. I'm happy to do that. But once I take it off, it ain't coming back. And so it's really drastic to go from having longer labias to almost having nothing. And as a gynecologist, I still believe that labias play an integral role in, in protecting the vaginal canal, minimizing infections. And what I tell everybody is, look, do the hybrid. And if at that point when you're completely healed, you come back and you say, can you take some more off? It'll be my pleasure to take more off for you. And I have to tell you, I maybe have had one or two patients over hundreds of labioplasties that have come back and wanted more taken off. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I encourage people, um, you know, if you want more off, we will do that in the future. Um, but also not everybody is going to look right with all of it removed. Like if their clitoris is, their clitoris itself is a little more swollen. Um, many times people are taking testosterone that causes the clitoris to be a little swollen or just, just that's just the way they were born is I don't think that looks that good with a, all of the labia removed. Also, if their labia majora aren't a little fuller, uh, I don't think it looks as good with the Barbie totally. look. And I think you're right. You have to look at it, not just tunnel vision labia. You're looking at it from 
an entire vulva appearance, which is the right way to do it. Because at the end of the day, that's how you have to look at, at aesthetics. You, it's not just about one tiny area. It's about how does it fit in the, in the big scheme of things. It's kind of similar to breast dog is, you know, you could have a friend of, well, this is the size she got, but you know, she's 5'11 and you're 5'2 and like, you just need to look at it with the entire person. Totally agree. And, and the other thing, you know, I get asked often is what techniques do you use Dr. Goslin? Because you'll read that there's so many different ways of performing these, these procedures. And, and I always tell people, and I don't know how you feel about it, Amy, but this is what I tell everybody. It's not so much the technique, it's the surgeon performing the procedure. If you have, if you feel very comfortable and you're getting amazing results with the wedge technique, and that's your comfort zone, then probably that's the technique for, for that surgeon, and they're probably going to apply it to you, and your results will probably be really good. If you do curvilinear as your most consistent way of approaching labias, and you do a really great job at a curved linear approach, you're probably going to get amazing results. So for those listening, can you just go over what that means of a curved linear versus a wedge technique? So, so the concept behind wedge technique was, how do you make the, the length of the labia smaller, but still keeping that external rim as natural as possible? So for a lot of people, they come in, and they have a darker pigmentation. They're much darker on the rim of the labia, menorah. Um, and for most people, they want they don't want that darkness. So uh, uh, resecting, uh, doing what you and I do, which is curling or going underneath it and doing almost like uh, a straight down resection uh, of that area, to me seems like the superior technique. Others prefer a natural look using a, a, a V incision on the labia menorah. Um, and so, and so it just depends on what the final look, the, the final desired look is going to be, but also depends on the experience you have with those techniques. So in somebody who doesn't do V wedges as much, and I'll use myself as an example, I rarely do a V wedge incision. I get nervous because I know the risk of separation of, the, of that wedge technique is much higher than somebody who uses it almost exclusively. And I know in my hands, a curve linear allows me the artistic freedom of creating the labias the way I believe the patient wants them in the long haul, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so I, I've, ne I've never done a wedge technique. I, I didn't learn the wedge technique and uh, at least what I learned and have read is that the wedge technique can be associated with more wound breakdown, as well as, you know, you and I both use the same instrument, the the Elman Surgitron is, I, I, I've never done a wedge technique, so I maybe somebody that does that technique can, you know, give me the counterpoints, but it just seems like I don't have a reason to ever do the wedge technique, is I feel like I can accomplish what I need to accomplish on everybody with the curvilinear approach. And I haven't met anybody that wants to keep the, the outer pigment to their labia, even though sometimes it comes back. Most of the time it comes yeah, back. Yeah, and, and I think I, I completely agree with you and I feel the exact same way. I, I do 99% of all my labioplasties curvilinear because I feel like the results are, are better. 
But because the internet has all this information out there, um, and they, they address the wedge technique a lot, it's something people come in asking for, and they'll say to me, which technique do you prefer? How do you perform your labioplasties? And, and I tell them exactly what I told you. It doesn't matter. It, all it matters is that the surgeon performing the procedure does it a lot, gets great results, and has a good reputation. Interesting. I got to be honest. I don't think I've ever had a patient ask me that. That's because you're so. from Cincinnati. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. They're like, I didn't know anybody did it here. So um, so you and I, I think we both do it this pretty similar is we both do it in our office. So let's talk about like what to expect on the day of the the surgery. Do you ever do it in the hospital? You know, I, I think when I first started in, in 2005, my first initial cases were done under general anesthesia in the hospital. Uh, probably because, one, I didn't have the proper procedure room to do it in my office. I was just starting. And second, I was nervous. I, I wanted the patient to sleep. I wanted to have all the equipment I needed in case she started really bleeding. But I would say 99.9% .9 of all my cosmetic surgeries done in the office, unless, you know, I, when I used to do hysterectomies, if I was doing a hysterectomy, I would sometimes do a labioplasty at the same time. But the problem is, in the hospital setting, we don't have access to some of the instruments you and I love to use yes. for these. Yes. And so I, I really mm -hmm. recommend, and I think it's very safe, and I tell patients, I actually I actually will put this argument to you, even done in a surgery center. This is what I tell patients. And we have a surgery center literally next door to my office, and they ask me, well, I think I want to be put to sleep. And this is what I tell everybody. I think an awake cosmetic gynecology procedure, whether it's vaginal tightening or labiaplasty, is actually yields to better outcomes than a sleep for the following reason. Because at the end of the day, it's not only about technique, but unfortunately it's about money. So a patient has to pay a surgery center a per hour fee, has to pay the anesthesiologist a per hour fee. And normally, you and I would book a labioplasty for a one-hour procedure in a surgery center. And that's going to cost a few thousand dollars. How just upset for the is your hospital. Patient? Just, just for the hospital. For the hospital. Yeah. Not just your, for the hospital how, fees. Not, not your fee. fee. So right. how upset is that patient right. going to be if you come out and you say to her, look, your labias were more complicated. It took me two hours. And you owe a few thousand extra dollars. So what happens is, in order not to get into those situations, surgeons who perform these procedures under general anesthesia typically, in my opinion, work at a faster pace because they're on a time crunch. Where when we, you and I are doing it in the office, everything is just relaxed, right? Yes. Patients mm -hmm. are watching TV. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm taking my time. Sometimes it takes me faster than I anticipated. And sometimes, because we're both neurotic, it takes me twice as long as I would have thought it was going to take me because everybody's labioplasties is like fingerprints. Nothing is created equal. And you're trying to make everything symmetrical. And so sometimes there's ridges and, and unforeseen um, extra ridge layers of skin that you have to remove in order to get that look you want. Sometimes you're halfway done suturing and you realize, I don't really love the way it looks. And so you take everything apart and restart. Mm -hmm. Right? And so yep. I, I think there's so many yep. benefits to doing it under awake anesthesia. And we've mastered it now. You do it, patients don't complain. My patients love it. I get a chance to really bond with them while I'm doing it. 
Um, I can talk and operate at the same time, so we have amazing conversations. I get to know them on a much deeper connection. They feel more connected to me, which means that they're more comfortable telling me stuff. And that's really important as a physician because a lot of times what happens is you meet somebody for a consultation, they book the surgery, you take them to the operating room, they're asleep the whole time, you wake up, you say hello, everything went beautifully, congratulations, and you leave. Yep. And really your relationship yep. has never materialized into anything more than a just very superficial transitional type of relationship. And I, and I feel like we're, I'm really happy that we have gotten to the point where a lot of these procedures now are being done awake. Yeah, I never thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. You really get to to know the person because you're talking to them for a while. Yeah, and you know what? Look, what happens when you get to know a patient, and I'll be really transparent. Let's say the patient comes back and says, Dr. Brenner, my left labia is longer than my right labia. I thought you were going to make it symmetrical. But... Watch this shift in conversation. Now, you, you've taken that patient in the operating room. They don't really know who you are. They never got a chance to know you, and they're upset. Versus the patient who comes in and, and has spent a, quite a long time with you in the operating room. You guys have talked about everything. She feels so much more relaxed with you. She's going to be a way more accepting of the fact of you turning around and saying, look, sometimes asymmetry happens because they each have their own blood supply. Everything reacts a little differently. I totally see it. Why don't we schedule you for a, a revision? I promise you we'll get it right. And they have that confidence in you because they feel like they know you. And so you've established a much stronger patient-physician relationship. Right. Yep. And that happens sometimes. Like, not often, but sometimes one side, for whatever reason, just gets really swollen compared to the other side. And it can distend the tissue and... Um, it's usually me saying I want to I know, to me them. too. Isn't that funny? Uh, and and, I and like I've been to, saying it more. Like, I, I, like I always look at it. I'm like, you know what? Can I, can I just ask you a favor? There's this one little spot that's really, I want to, I just want to fix for you. Can, do you mind if I do that? And they're like, what spot? Yeah. Like, I don't I'm know like, what no, you're no, talking about. No, no. If you look about, over like, here, let me show you with the mirror. About. Let me show you a magnifying glass. That's because we, do, you know, we take pride in our work. And, and we, this is what we do. And, and I think when you become, when you get to that level Amy, that's, that's when you know you're doing the right things for people because you really have taken it to a passion level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I know I need to let you go, but let's just talk about two minutes of what to, what people can expect in the healing phase of, cause this isn't something, you know, we do today and you're, you know, off to the races and back to life tomorrow. There is, there is some downtime associated with, plastic surgery. I mean, yeah, I tell everybody, look, there's a few things that I really stress when I talk about post-op recovery. Aside from them getting a very detailed instructions of what their post-op is going to look like, aside from the fact that all patients know they can call me 24 hours a day if they have any problems or complications. So they know that I'm there for them. Um, the first thing is swelling. I tell everybody, look, I call it the first few days my Frankenstein period. Because if you take a mirror and you go home, and everybody does because it's just human nature, for the next few days you're going to look at your labias and, and probably cry at what you're seeing because you can't believe you did this to yourself. The second thing, which is really important, I tell everybody, the sutures that we typically use, 
dissolve by themselves. But because they sit in a moist, hot environment and because they're surrounded by your natural vaginal flora, oftentimes they will pick up an odor. And so, and so patients become a little sensitive to that. And I, I always let them know because if not, I get the phone calls. I think I have an infection. Can you see me right away on a Sunday morning? So I, that's what I counsel. I don't know how you. Oh, same thing. Like I tell people like, you're going to think you have a yeast infection. Like you don't. <laughs> this is normal. So. Yeah. And, I, and I, what I tell so. patients is, look, we're going to place you on antibiotics because it's an elective procedure. But if you're delivering a baby and you tear um, and you have a first or second degree vaginal tear and, and you're repairing in the field right after the patient poop during her delivery, you don't typically place, place them on antibiotics. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Knock on wood. I don't think I've ever seen an infection. Have from you? Never. Never. Have you? Never. Have you? Never. Um, so it's, that's the good part. And I think, look, on, on the other side, that's really nice. I think there's low risk of infection. And I think the vaginal tissue is very forgiving. Um, and that's why... I think these done in the right hands, you get really, really outstanding results. Yes. I had one patient that uh, I did her surgery that weekend. She had a like house full of house guests. And then two days later, she flew across the country for work, which, you know, whenever you fly walking through an airport, like, you know, there's a lot of walking at an airport. Um and so I saw her back at one week and it still looked like an explosion had gone off. And so I said, you need to take another week where you're just laying around. But other than that, I usually see people back at a week and tell them after a week you can, you know, live your life. But for that first week, you want to be laying around and watching TV and reading a book and kind of like you would act like if you had the flu where you're just laying around and letting other people do everything else. So I couldn't agree with you more. Well, thank you so much to join us. I know if you just want to kind of give a heads up of where people can find you and, and your podcast and, and all the things that you do, because you also have a wealth of information. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's always, I always enjoy speaking with you, Amy. I think uh, you have so much passion in this field that you're doing the right thing for all your patients. Um, I'm going to have you on my podcast. So um, I have a podcast called Women's Health and Beyond, and we talk about cosmetic gynecology, uh, women's health, and um, it's something that I'd love for you guys and your listeners to join and, and, and subscribe to. Um, my website is davidgoslin.com, um, and if you're in my area, feel free to give us a call for a consultation. Um, but truly, Amy, thank you for being you and, and really helping so many women feel confident about themselves. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links 
are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.